Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, we're revisiting a story that Ernest Anfin first shared on the podcast in February of 2021. It's a story we call The All-American. Now, I do have to warn folks that there is harm that comes to animals in this story. And I wanted to rerun it now so that Taj Easton, who recently recorded a story on a similar theme on an episode called Mercy, both stories have to do with how these men learned something about their own capacity for cultivating compassion. And so I thought it would be interesting if the two of them over on Patreon had a conversation about these two stories. So don't miss that. If you're a a member of ours over at Patreon, there will be a conversation between Taj and Ernest, and I think I'll have Taj come in at the end of this episode to comment a little bit as well. By the way, if you don't know, Ernest Anfin has a huge TikTok following. He shares personal stories there too, under the name Zerman Zane. So don't miss that. And now, without further ado, here is Ernest Anfin with a story we call The All American. Today, if you were to see me walking down the street, you'd see an unremarkable, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, middle-aged man. But in my youth, in my youth, I embodied the golden boy, the all-American boy, the boy who could do no wrong. And I did all I could to maintain that image, to maintain that facade of perfection and correctness and, and privilege. But 
so often it it was just that it was just a facade i i was no all-american boy i knew that i had a capacity to detach to engage in violence and so often it felt like this corruption was just beneath the surface waiting to explode and there were times when it did explode and, and people were frightened and people were hurt and relationships were destroyed after my second divorce, I, I just couldn't pretend any longer. I couldn't pretend to be him, to be the golden boy. It just wasn't me. I, I had to understand this corruption. And so I, I went to therapy. And like all therapy, it began with that familiar question. So, tell me, what was your childhood like? Well, I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. It was really idyllic. As a kid, we had tree houses and apple fights, and we ran all over the country, and we camped out under the stars. We had every pet imaginable, dogs and rabbits and horses and hamsters. I mean, we had this giant pet cemetery, and, and whenever a pet died, we'd have a funeral, and, and we'd take a shoebox and make a casket out of it. We, we decorated it with glitter and beads and feathers and ribbons, and, and we'd make floral arrangements and headstones. I mean, everything. And we carried the casket through the grove singing hymns and my brother would eulogize whatever we were burying. And we'd cry and we'd pray. I mean, we really did it up. It, it was quite a production. Cats, my therapist asked. She liked cats. D did you have any cats? No, no, no cats. I, I mean, we had cats, just not as pets. My dad hated cats. The only cats we had were wild cats that ran around the farmyard. He especially hated house cats, jumping on the counters and tables, the whole litter box thing, getting too close to food. I mean, ugh, it's gross. I mean, we all know it's gross, honestly. Yeah, there's a story. We all remember this story. We all remember this night. I was in elementary school, that age range. It was the fall. I wasn't very old. Dad had been combining corn all day, and he would combine as late as he possibly could into the night. So we were eating late, really, really late. And my mom had been teaching all day, my brother had been at school all day, and then he hauled corn all night after school. We were a bunch of tired, really, really hungry people. So we sat down at the dinner table. It was the stereotypical 1970s kitchen, with the harvest gold appliances, the dark woodwork, the crazy wallpaper. And my mom, she was the queen of casseroles. She prepared a casserole of some sort. Tuna fish and noodle, macaroni and cheese, something like that. And we just finished praying when all hell breaks loose. This mangy old scrawny cat comes flying out of the cupboard behind my sisters. The cat just launches itself right over the table and lands smack dab in the middle of my mom's casserole. All of us kids and my mom, we shriek and scream because we're so surprised by this cat. And the cat is slip sliding around the casserole dish Food is flying all over the place, but before it could jump out of the casserole, my dad grabs it by the tail. You damn cat! He swipes it off the table, marches to the porch, and along the way he grabbed a shotgun. And then he went to the front steps of our house and he threw the cat up in the air. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that cat was dead before it hit the ground. My dad did not like cats in the house, not around food, not after a long day of backbreaking work. Yeah. That was a night we remember. That didn't traumatize you, my therapist inquired, as a little boy? No, no. I, I don't really remember being traumatized. I, I thought the cat deserved it. 
That cat was always sneaking around trying to get into the house. Everybody in the family had kicked that cat out of the house, you know, a hundred times. I mean, sure, it was a cat, but it wasn't stupid. It knew better. Yeah, I I remember I was a little pissed because now what the hell are we going to eat? The casserole was ruined. I remember the gunpowder burned my nostrils and the bang was louder, so much louder than I expected. My ears rang for a long time. That's what I remember, but, but I don't remember being traumatized. You don't think that affected you? You didn't grow up on a farm. You, you don't understand. On the farm, you're always so close, so very, very close to both life and death. I wasn't bothered by death any more than I was bothered by birth. And my dad, my dad loved animals. He wasn't even a hunter. He wasn't a gun nut. He wasn't a Rambo tough guy. In fact, he always talked about this horse named Goldie. It was his horse back when he was a kid. Goldie grew old, and she eventually needed to be put down. So he called the vet. But after two lethal injections, Goldie just wouldn't die. The vet got frustrated, and he took this rifle, and he gave it to my dad, and he said, It's your horse. you got to kill her. Put a bullet between her eyes. My dad reluctantly killed Goldie that day, out of mercy. But he hated guns after that, and he resented that the vet ordered him to kill her. He said he'd never tell me to kill anything, and he never did. I saw him save so many animals. I remember this one day. It was bad. It was, it was really, really terrible. My brother was mowing hay, and uh, when you mow hay, you use a field mower, not a lawnmower. A field mower has a sickle blade, so you have to imagine this giant electric hair trimmer like a barber uses or a beard trimmer. But instead of cutting a path of hair an inch or an inch and a half wide, this thing cuts a path of grass 10, 12 feet wide. It's the same engineering principle. The field mower is just on a much, much larger scale. That's, that's what a sickle blade is. If you see it in action, it looks like a laser beam or something is attached to the side of the tractor. And as the tractor passes, the hay just falls down backwards. Our dog, Tippy was with him. The mower, it stirs up all kinds of pheasants and rabbits and other animals, and the dogs just love to chase everything that gets stirred up. And Tippy was our our favorite dog. She was like a second mother to all of us kids. She was chasing this rabbit, and the rabbit ran away from the mower, but then it did a 180, and it turned, and it ran straight back toward the blade. But when it got back to the blade, it just jumped over the blade. Tippy was so focused on the rabbit, she didn't notice the blade, and she ran right into it. And the blade cut off her paws right below her ankles. My brother was hysterical. He jumped out of the tractor and he picked her up and he ran back with her to the farm place. And I'll always remember him carrying her down that dirt road under the shade of the walnut trees. His shirt was unbuttoned and his chest was bloody. It was bloody all the way down to his knees and Tippy was in his arms and she was unconscious. And her bloody and mangled paws were just dangling by a few tendons, a few strands of flesh. That's all that held her paws onto her body. And he was crying and screaming for help. I mean, God, you talk about something that traumatized me. That traumatized me. I had no idea what happened. I didn't want to know what happened. I was just paralyzed. I thought for sure she was dead. But my dad, he he jumped into action and he took Tippy out of my brother's arms and he put her in the pickup and they sped off to the vet. And the vet saved Tippy. It, It was incredible. It was a miracle, really. He reattached all of her paws. Well, her one front paw never worked again and she hopped around on three legs for the rest of her life, but she survived because of my dad, and I have no idea how much it cost to fix that dog, but my dad didn't care, he fixed her. And she lived for many years after that accident.
Did she die? Did Tippy eventually die? My therapist asked. Yeah, she did. She, uh, she did. That was, that was a sad day, too. My sisters were riding their horses along a highway, and Tippy was running next to them between the horses and the road. She always had to be protecting us. And, um, yeah, out of nowhere, this car just came along, and it hit Tippy, and she flew over the hood of the car and bounced off of the windshield and came crashing down onto the pavement. It was probably the blow to her head that killed her. My sisters saw it all, and the car never stopped. They sprinted their horses home, and they got my dad, and he went back down to the road with his pickup, and he brought Tippy home in a box. I remember petting her in that box. She was so small, and her body was dead and lifeless. We couldn't bury her in the pet cemetery, not with all the other animals. Tippy was the queen. She was the queen. She couldn't be buried like a common pet. So my brother dug a a special grave for her in a row of pine trees behind the house. It was a quiet place, especially at sunset. It it was really, really quite a lovely place. And we buried her there. We piled rocks on top of her grave, and, and we put them in the shape of a heart. And we also stuck a cross on top of that grave. I don't know. For some reason, we believed that all of our pets were necessarily Christians. My therapist chuckled, scribbling on her notepad. Oh, the blood, my God, the blood, she said. I get nauseous just listening to you. She shook her head. Blood? I I haven't even told you a bloody story yet. Oh, really? I I just get so queasy when I have to think about blood. I do, but go ahead, go ahead. I can take it, I can take it. So I continued. Yeah, I'll never forget this one day when my dad and I went to the butcher shop. We took this beautiful black Angus steer to be butchered so that we could eat it. I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old. I don't remember a lot, but I remember the butcher was wearing white overalls and rubber gloves and boots. His kill room was huge. It was all white with a red floor, and the floor sloped to the center where there was a big metal grate that covered a drain. The ceiling was really, really high, like like probably 20 feet high. There were stainless steel carts and cabinets, knives and saws, and so many other things that I had never seen before. And there was a big cable that hung from a pulley in the ceiling, and on the end of the cable was a hook. I was transfixed. I was really fascinated by everything in the room. It looked like something out of a horror movie. It all seemed sterile, but obviously so, so deadly. Bang! I I was startled. I turned. Uh, The steer dropped to his knees. Air rushed from his lungs as he fell. There was a guttural bellow as his head hit the floor, and and then his legs buckled, and his body rolled to the ground. Blood trickled from his nose and mouth. Quickly, the butcher grabbed the hook that was hanging from the ceiling, and he forced it through the steer's septum. He pushed a green button on the wall, and an electrical winch lifted the steer until he was dangling. His entire body was dangling from the ceiling, directly above the metal grate. And then he lowered the steer until his neck was at eye level. The butcher took this incredibly long, sharp knife and he began to swipe, 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 swipe at the calf's neck. He he wasn't reckless at all. He was incredibly precise. He swiped around and around the calf's neck until this, this thin white line appeared just beneath the steer's thick black coat. That line grew wider and wider until it turned red. And then there was this waterfall of blood that came gushing from the steer's neck. The blood ran like a river down his body and into the metal grate, and and then a few seconds later there was this pop. I don't know, the butcher sliced through something, a vertebrae or something, and the body separated from the head and it came crashing to the floor with this heavy squishing sound. 
and the pool of blood widened as the carcass fell over the drain. I, I remember the blood beneath the body was was frothy and foamy, and I, and I didn't understand why it was that way. It was just frothy, and I didn't expect it to be like that. I wasn't shocked. I was I was still. I was in a trance. The whole thing happened so quickly. This animal was alive a few minutes, a few seconds ago, and here his head was, dangling from a hook. His lifeless eyes were glazed over and staring back at me, separated from his body. I would have called it surreal, but I didn't know what surreal meant at that age. I, I looked at the blood on the floor and then back at the head dangling from the ceiling. And before I knew it, the butcher had grabbed the head and pulled it close to his body. He smiled and he said to me, Hey kiddo, you can't butcher a steer without getting a little bloody. And then he pushed the steer's head, swinging it like a giant pendulum. It swung over me, and for whatever reason I remained lost in that moment, paralyzed. I heard the calf's severed head as it swooshed over me, and I looked up and was eclipsed by this, this mass of severed tendons and cartilage and ligaments and muscle tissue. Blood rained down upon me, and the head traveled back to the butcher, and he caught it and laughed. And then I laughed, and my dad laughed. My therapist raised her eyebrows and cocked her head. Now, you're going to tell me that that didn't traumatize you. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I, I thought it was kind of cool. It felt like some kind of initiation rite into a fraternity or brotherhood or whatever. Hell, that steer was turned into a hundred packages of meat wrapped in white paper and stacked in our freezer. I had zero problems eating that calf. I had no remorse. My therapist looked up at me. So you don't remember being bothered by any of this? You were never bothered? You just detached from all of this? Amazing, she said, shaking her head. Well, there's one story that kind of bothers me a little bit. Okay, tell me, tell me that story. I was in this dark place, this pitch black place. But in the stillness, I felt something apart from me, and I heard a distinct, separate sound. I knew what it was. It was rats. There, there were rats in the bottom of the grain bin. They were in every corner. Two or three were in every corner. And then my dad engaged the grinder below. I, I didn't have a problem with rats. I'd been around rats my whole life. I'd killed hundreds, if not thousands, of rats without a second thought. And I knew I was going to kill these rats, too. I drove my scoop under one of the rats, and I used it like a snowplow. The rat was totally unaware that the grain beneath him was moving. And when he was over the hole, I pulled my shovel out, and the grain began to flow through the trap door in the floor. It was like the rat was sinking into quicksand, and by the time he realized what was happening, it was too late. He could try to run, but the gravitational pull of the grain was too strong. He couldn't outrun gravity. He struggled at first, but eventually he surrendered. Eventually he was consumed by the grain. First his body, then his ears, then his head, and finally his whiskers twitch, twitch, twitching as he disappeared below into the grinder, pulverized into hog feed. The grinder roared and chewed up everything that fell from the ceiling, and I repeated the snowplow routine over and over until eventually there were only a couple of rats left. I think it was the second to the last rat. I don't think it was the very last rat, but I, but I pushed him over to the trapdoor and he began his irreversible descent into the grinder. Like all the others, he struggled at first, but, but resigned eventually. Eventually, the quicksand of grain engulfed him, and he disappeared below the surface with his whiskers. Twitch, twitch, twitching. And I sat there, breathing, motionless, silent, watching him disappear into death. 
And then, bang, the surface of the grain exploded and that rat burst like a missile, heading straight for my foot. I didn't realize it, but the lace of my boot was untied and the laces were really, really long. Like the grain and the rats and everything else in the bin, my laces were sucked into the gravity flow. And that rat was using my lace as a lifeline. Hand over fist, he was propelling himself out of the grain, away from his death and toward me. In a split second, his claws were on my boot. A split second after that, and his claws dug into the skin of my calf. Oh my fucking God, I thought, he's coming up my leg. He's coming up the inside of my pant leg. God damn it, he's going to go for my balls. He's going to castrate me. I'll be a bloody mess. I was only 15. I hadn't even had a chance to have sex yet. How would I explain this to a girl, to anyone? I'd never be a father. What the hell am I going to do? I couldn't run. I couldn't strip off my clothes. I was wearing a coverall. He'd be at my balls before I got the damn thing unzipped. There was, there was only one thing I could do. I thrust both of my hands into my thigh, and I wrapped my hands as tightly as I could around my leg. And luckily, luckily, I hit my mark. I hit his neck, and I squeezed and I squeezed the son of a bitch against my thigh. And he kicked, and he kicked, and he dug his claws into my leg and scratched and scratched. And I squeezed and squeezed, and he kicked, and I squeezed until he stopped scratching. And then I squeezed a long time after that. I had to make damn sure that bastard was dead, and I squeezed until I let go. Until his body was still and rested motionless against my thigh, against the scratches he left on my leg. I stood and I shook my leg. His limp, lifeless body slowly slid down my thigh and around my knee and fell out the bottom of my pants. Holy fuck. Holy hell, I thought. His lifeless eyes stared up at me in the darkness. You, you fucking bastard. I beat you, goddammit. I beat you. You're fucking dead. My hand was cramped and my heart was pounding, ready to leap from my chest. With my boot, I slid his carcass to the trap door and kicked him over the edge into the grinder. My therapist looked up at me again. Why do you think that story bothers you? Well, I said, whenever I think about strangling that rat, I I just wonder if I'm some kind of psycho. I mean, didn't Jeffrey Dahmer have stories like this? Didn't he start this way? (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine my kids experiencing any of this. I I didn't have a normal childhood. I I don't know what a normal childhood is, but, but I know I didn't have one. I feel like these stories strip away my all-American facade. They leave me naked and bare. They corrupt the memories of my idyllic youth. They expose me and shame me. I don't want them to be part of me. But the truth is, they are part of me. The all-American is the dogged father combining corn. The all-American is the unappreciated mother cooking casseroles late at night. The All-American is the boy carrying his dog down a dirt road shaded by walnut trees. The All-American is two girls sprinting their horses along a rural highway. I mean, these are the All-American images that are so often presented to us, the Norman Rockwell ideal of America. You can't deny that, and and, and I live that. But but the All-American is also the shotgun blast that leaves our ears ringing and our nostrils burning. The All-American is the tendons and the muscles and the tissues of bodies being ripped apart. The All-American is long, sharp knives swipe, swipe, swiping through waterfalls of frothy blood. The All-American is strangulation and suffocation, leaving nothing but lifeless eyes staring back at us in dark, dusty places. 
I mean, the truth is the truth. If you love the All-American, you can't look away from its violence. You can't pick and choose. You can't just wish for the corruption to disappear. If we ignore that truth, the truth of who we are may very well destroy us. But some say fear is the beginning of wisdom. So let us be wise in our fear. Let us see ourselves for who we truly are. And let us fight the evil within ourselves. Jesus Christ, that story is fucking heavy. This is Taj, by the way. Hey, y'all. I remember hearing this back when it first aired, and that part about Tippy and the mower has totally embedded itself into my psyche. The imagery really haunts me. It makes me feel soft for thinking I had been around a lot of animal violence and death as a kid. But the part of the story that I really, really connect with is this line Ernest draws between the idyllic picture of American life that we grow up with and the violence that lies just beneath the surface of all that. This idea of turning the Rockwellian images we've all grown so familiar with upside down and taking a long look at what lies underneath. I'm really drawn to that, and sometimes I wonder, what kind of toll does it take that we look around and no one's talking about it? No one seems to want to look at it. And I'm really struck by this idea that Ernest gets at in the story, how we choose what animals we care about and what animals we don't. Like how Tippy and Goldie's deaths were so hard for him and his family, while the steer's death carries virtually no weight. What the fuck is going on there? I mean, I know it's not arbitrary, it's functional. We slaughter cows by the hundreds of thousands every day. Literally every fucking day. So it serves us to take compassion out of the equation, right? It's a trip. It's a trip how we can so easily choose to just switch it off when it serves us. But then we spend fucking millions of dollars every day pampering our dogs and cats like they were goddamn British royalty. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're making the choice, but it's a choice. And it's easy to switch it off. It's wild. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.